Hello. This June, I published my sixth book. It's called, as you probably know by now, 1923, and it is extremely close to my heart. It tells the story of what happened to me during the COVID lockdowns when the world shut down around us. That was when a mysterious roll of projected film from 100 years ago came into my possession, which in itself is quite a long story. What followed was an immersive journey into a lost world of the riders of a distant, merciless Tour de France and their sometimes brutal fates as they raced through a Europe that was simultaneously cooling down after the conflagration of the Great War while at the same time firing the starting pistol for the next chapter in its own destruction. But alongside that, the summer of 1923 is a time of insane and bewildering creativity across the continent. Pitched into this cultural and political maelstrom is one mysterious Flemish rider, whose life I start to uncover and whose descendants I seek to contact in the real world. This is a love story to the Tour de France, told a century too late, an avalanche of discoveries that became my sole purpose and my sustaining mission. It's called 1923, The Mystery of Lot 212 and the Tour de France Obsession, and it's out on June the 22nd, but available to pre-order from all the usual places. Julian Alaphilippe's birthday uh, today. And he was 31. Is that right? Or was he 32? Uh, he was 31. 30. Well, we had this discussion before that because it's his <sighs> 31st birthday, does that categorise him as a 31-year-old rider this year? So now he is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he went out on a classic Alaphilippe, go out and celebrate my birthday. Yeah. yeah. Alaphilippe fashion. Yeah. yeah. And he ripped up the whole race, basically. Thanks. It was a very strong... He dragged out Ciccone um, and others. Yeah, his. Pr- you're right. His presence kind of shaped the race yeah. and the way the the the, the yeah the, the whole thing it's actually raced from from the very minute he attacked yeah, to the very end it was kind of in yeah. the in the shadow of what julian Alaphilippe did but what was impressive was chicconi's ride and Pedrero. yeah that was funny that was random Maybe well 31 year old yeah climber who we haven't seen the whole race and not in many other races but he did a good ride a day of his life yeah but yeah it was um it looked like a really hard day Often at Dauphiné, the final day can be savage. Yeah. And the very nature of the race, thanks to Alaphilippe's presence up the road at only three and a half minutes off GC, meant that the hammer was down for everybody. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah. A, and another really, really, really steep climb at the end of another stage race. Monstrously. Yeah. I think I've done it before, but I need... To, um, in a prologue, I think it was, at the Dauphiné oh. many years ago. What, just that? Just just that, yeah. Like a 3K prologue. Because oh. it's only, what, 2Ks long? 1.9K. 1.8, yeah. Yeah, so it's like a K Good running grief. and then turn left. I remember turning left, I think. and yeah. Up you go. But the crowds were like Tour de France style. Yeah, I've never seen that before at the Dauphiné. Yeah. Because deep. Yeah. Well, I th- but I, t- I kind of think it's a... There's a lesson to be learned here, isn't there, in terms of um, where you take races to, especially for the last day. You don't have to finish on some windswept flipping mountain yeah. on the top of a, so true. an HC climb that makes it just difficult for everyone to get there and get off. Like, yeah. to, by all means, take them over a load of HC climbs. Take mm-hmm. them over the Col de Port. Take them over the, what was the big one today? Um, Grenier. The Grenier. But, you know, why not just finish? In, a, in, a, in the outskirts of a city, France is littered with these little roads yeah. and you know, steep climbs. It's good. It's really good. Be what, what's, what's the town at the bottom? Grenoble. Oh, it's Grenoble. 
Chartreusement, c'est une « you were on your field chartreuse » thing. I know, I recognize it. That's how many times we see the monastery. And then it came up. I didn't want to say anything. And the graphic came up and I was like, I knew that. Yeah. didn't know it enough to actually say it before the graphic came up on the screen. Well, I'd done quite a bit of prep on the actual Bastille itself, the Grenoble Bastille. I just had no opportunity. Is it Napoleonic? No, it's... um. Uh, it was first, its construction was first ordered in 1591 Ooh. during the Wars of the Religions. Mm. Yeah? So Catholics v, v Protestants, basically, is, yeah. the Huguenot, is the Huguenots, the repression and the eviction and the ev- expulsion from large parts of France of the Huguenots, who were Protestants, and the Catholic, uh, uh, and the Catholics sort of like took control. But, the, you know, this is when essentially French interests were battling the English and the Scots in France. You know, and there were nine wars of the religions, only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this, so um, I can't remember the guy's name. Well, well, since I've done the research, let me tell you. Yeah, look it up. It Wait was uh, the Catholic uh, warlord, essentially François de Bonne, the Duke of uh, Lesdiguières, who seized control of Grenoble at the end of the 16th century and ordered the construction to defend it henceforth of the Bastille, um, evicting evicting the Huguenots. Yeah, and that was the ninth war of religion. Yeah. When you say defend, I guess more as a bastion to hide under siege, because you're not going to be able to defend much from up there, are you? Yeah, I suppose so. I don't really know what I mean by that, because no. I don't know the first thing about military history, really. I don't, really. Um, uh, wh- why did you build a castle on a rocky outcrop? Why would you do that? Above, a, above a city. It's really easy to defend. In the 16th century. But, well, I guess to put your people of importance, or I genuinely don't know. <laughs> I mean, look at me. Well, I don't know, but I just. But why? I mean, unless you, it's a good lookout. Yeah, it's a good lookout. Um, well, if someone wants to take Grenoble off you, and you've built this big castle with all your gunpowder and your arms up there, and yeah. your garrison yeah. stationed up there, they can't take Grenoble unless they take the Bastille, can they? Because you'll just come down and, and bang their heads together. There you go. Or, or, or fire your cannons at them, and also you mm. can see them coming for miles away, can't you? Well, yeah. I don't know. But they often do it, don't they? I mean, the, the Cathars did it, but then that was just to hide. Yeah. More than defend. Yeah. But, yeah, we should look more into this. I, I read a book uh, years ago called Danubia, um, written by the, the wonderful popular historian Simon Winder, who I once had dinner with, actually. Really? Yeah, because uh, we had a mutual friend who was a publisher at Picador who published his books, and he knew that I was a fanboy of Simon Winder's. He slewed him. And, and well, well um, Paul said, said, do you want to come for dinner and meet Simon Winder? Did he talk to you? Mate, he, did, he had no choice. That's how oh, really, did you sit there were like Yeah, there were eight people around the dinner table, and um, Paul said, Ned, why don't you sit there? And so, Simon, why don't you sit next to Ned? <laughs> nice, so it wasn't like your Martin Amos experience. Oh, with Ian McEwan. Yeah. Now, that was kind of orchestrated, but in a slightly evil way, and I didn't know what I was doing here. But with Simon Winder... I just bent his ear for... That's brilliant. And I try... Because he's written three books, Danubia, Germania, and Lotharingia, which tell the story of um, Europe, Western, yeah. Western Europe. Really interesting stuff, like really accessible and but fascinating, rich, and very amusing at times as well. But he didn't know what to write next. This is a mm. few years ago. So I said, you should write a book called... You should write a book about 20th century Europe called Europia. Oh, and nice. tie it all together. All those threads, all those bits that you left yeah. off with the collapse of the homeland, bring them all up today. Talk about 20th century. Oh, but then we kind of, he briefly was very sort of intrigued by that idea, but then went, uh, you can't be that funny about the 20th century in Europe, can you really? Well, you're saying that. I mean, not funny, but um, you've had dinner with another historian, a 20th century historian. Have with I? Me. Yeah. 
with um, also I? with the late and great Richard Moore at Nadav Kanda's house. Ben McIntyre. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ben McIntyre was there. At a there. barbecue, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Ben yeah. McIntyre, who's brilliant, who wrote SAS Rogue Heroes. He's just got a book out at the moment. I can't remember. On that one. was funny that evening. Yeah, I know. It's random. That was during it? the Dauphiné. Yeah. Maybe th- four years ago? Yeah. Something like that? We were yeah. doing the Dauphiné and you were... So Nadav Kanda, for those who don't know, is... Is arguably the world's greatest living photographer. Yeah, I think you yeah. could make a case for that. Yeah. Um, South African originally? South African originally. Lives in dear London. Fr- lives in, in London. Dear yeah. friend of mine. Godfather to Archibald. Did the portrait on Racing Through the Dark. Did the portrait on Racer and the Racer. Yeah. And he loves his cycling. Loves, loves his cycling. cycling. Well, that's why. That's why. Yeah. yeah. He schlugged you, basically, let's be honest. It was a mutual schlug. <laughs> It was a, a sh- uh, yeah, a mutual <laughs> society. Um, yeah, and so he invited us for a random barbecue and Ma- well, Ben McIntyre. He invi- I think he invited you and you kind of like, because you're quite good like this, you said, why don't you come along with like yeah. Richard? Yeah. That's a few years ago. So we, me and Richard, who aren't really used to hobnobbing with people like that, we were quite nervous. <laughs> and we came along a bit later and we thought we would like quite close to his house. And he lives in, as you can imagine, beautiful house. Yeah. It's been architecturally just an amazing place. Um, but we were quite nervous and we, we realised we hadn't arrived with anything <laughs> and we c- all we could find was a Tesco's Extra down the road <laughs> and we went deep price wise with oh, a, on a bottle of wine double figures Eight ninety nine. Oh, not quite double figures Eight ninety nine. that's a good bottle of wine there <laughs> <laughs> the Italian <laughs> bottle of Chianti for eight ninety nine. lovely and we took it I remember him like answering the door and we kind of handed it over and he gave that look of like you know he took the bottle off us and you know took it outside to have it shot <laughs> <laughs> like his wine, Nadav, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he and then he said, well, uh, no, no, because he's really polite, isn't he, lovely? And he said, oh, I tell you what, do you mind if we, we'll put this aside and have it later. <laughs> and then he said, because I've already, un, un, you know, I've, I've let this one breathe and it was kind of something just, yeah. like, you know, just yeah. intensely beautiful and <laughs> <Yeah>. expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. You were <laughs> horrified afterwards. Yeah, mortified. <laughs> and there was a film reviewer there. The there was, yeah. Lost, just lost their job. That's right. I can't remember who they were. It was very kind of metropolitan elite. It was very it. kind of the creative elite of London, it wasn't was, it? It was, and me and Richard. Yeah. <laughs> and me. Yeah. Why, uh, are we, why are we talking about that? Um, because we were talking about historians. And then we were talking about... Danu- ah, we are talking about what are castles for on Rocky Outcrops. Okay, yes. Danube, in Danubia, Simon Winder's book, right. which tells the story of... Basically, those parts of the Holy Roman Empire that were right on the margins, right on the fringes, right in Eastern Europe. So, like, what is now Hungary, what is now mm. Romania, yeah. what is now Moravia and places like that, through which the Danube flows. And they were the frontier um, for hundreds of years between the Holy Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire. So, period, and you know, really depopulated, and the Danube is a pretty inhospitable uh, and marshy terrain that's not, like, conducive to like villages and towns and settlements. So those villages that were there, they're all built on these little rocky outcrops on the Danube Valley. And the reason you had to have a rocky outcrop because you had to have a little castle on the top. Just because you, you had, had to, to generationally see, you know, you had to watch that valley 24 yeah. hours a day for the Ottomans because they were fleet of foot, right? Yeah, they would yeah. charge in in their cavalry, mm. ransack everything. That's right. Uh, and then take, take what they could, including people, yeah, the Janissaries, you know, like so yeah. the young, the young, yeah. the youngsters would be taken and taken mm. off to Istanbul and basically mm. into the court. Mm. You never see them again. Um, uh, but th- sometimes, you know, thirty years would elapse, forty years in between Ottoman raids. Hmm. So, like life expectancy being what it was, like you could have almost two generations of of villagers in Blusk or wherever yeah. 
It's kind of like weird Magyar <laughs> languages, you know. Little th- a couple of generations of people could grow up without like ever having actually seen the Ottomans. Oh, so yeah. Granddad would say, "Never, you know, yeah. you've got to make sure you have a guard up there." I remember fourteen twenty one. Yeah, I remember fourteen twenty one. And you'd go, "Yeah, but it's fourteen sixty eight, mate. We haven't yeah. had anything since then." So I'm just warning you on his deathbed, you know. And they go, ah, "Let's not bother." Let's not bother anymore. And then the next day, they charge in. Mm. Rocky outcrops. Rocky outcrops. So that's kind of what the Bastille was then. Yeah, I think so. Except it was protecting against Protestants. We don't know what it was for, do we? No. We're just wildly, wildly. flailing around, thrashing yeah. around and speculating. Uh, so here's the final margin of victory. Jonas Vingegaard's won uh, by two minutes and 23 seconds to Adam Yates. Ben O'Connor at 2.56 in third. Jai Hindley, 3.16. Guillaume Martin, sixth place. That's an exception. It's almost like he's flipped his standard. Yeah, he's, he's ninth. He's nailed on for ninth or 11th normally. Wow. Alaphilippe just about nerdling his way to a top 10 finish. Carlos Rodriguez... Uh, taking the white jersey as well as the ninth place on GC. And Torsten Train from Uno X, about whom I know absolutely nothing, finished in eighth place. That's just um, the, the path of the course with Uno X. Yeah, but I know, li- I know a little bit about Tobias Johannesson. In fact, quite a lot about his knee operation and stuff like that. I was oh, yeah, you about. Do, yeah, yeah, his like brothers and his brother's mitocardiac thing. Long COVID heart problems. But anyway, um, yeah. and Julia Ciccone won. And. Uh, yeah, well, the thing about him is he was targeting the Giro. And he gave an interview to Seb just now that I yeah. couldn't record, where he said, um, yeah, I've come to the Dauphiné, I've taken a stage win, this smashed my expectations, I'll be going to the Tour de France. In between now and then, I'm going to go and get married to my fiancé. And, and then race the Nationals. a gift to his future wife today. Yeah, yeah. Good on you, Julio. It's a bl- he's a good bike rider, isn't he? It's a bloody good ride. Yeah, really that ride. was a show of force. But he's shape-shifted. He really has. He's done a whole galapan on us. Well, he looks like Balcomolomer all of a sudden. It does a bit. Like slightly curved back. Yeah. I think his nose has grown a little bit. He looks different. He looks different. He's also running one of the um, nose plasters, which is quite retro. Who else does that in the peloton? I used to do that in my final years, thinking it helped. Didn't. Like I thought it did, so it did. Yeah. Placebo. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. It's kind of like we said about cop-out tape or the physio tape that we used to cover ourselves with. You don't see that very often now. No. And there was a while where we were wearing these like bracelets which were supposed to tend, like change your body kind of magnetism or something. <laughs> that, that was a year or so where everyone was wearing those. <laughs> thinking, thinking they helped. Sonia Duval? Uh, no, it was Slipstream. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's quite a Slipstream, that's slipstream thing, to do. thing, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. is quite a Slipstream thing. I love all these different fashions that come through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, everyone's apparently gone back to just eating as much carbs as they can when there was a while when it was like... Just like be easy on the carbs. Yeah. And now it's just eat as many carbs as you can. Is it? So yeah. It's back gone, to the back, full, gone back to full circle. Just get as much pasta rice in you as possible. I mean. I wonder if the gluten free thing's still going on. That went on for a while as well. What? That everyone should be gluten free? Yeah. Because gluten's bad. Because gluten's bad. Right. I don't <coughs> think that's the case anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not up to speed. Yeah. Here comes across the lines. So just watching live footage still. Oh, uh, Campanats, who's lost his jersey. That's harsh, man. Mm. Poor old boy. I know. He had 40 points. Little and I, I hadn't realised it because Ciccone hadn't won any of the climbs, but he'd been amassing points. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he's, he's at the foot of the climb and he's 32 points, his total, and there's 10 points at the top of the climb. And Ciccone just, well, it's a lovely reward for Ciccone, but uh, he didn't need to win the King of the Mountains as well. That's just so hard, isn't it? On the bike racing. It is bike racing. 
I wow. enjoy the King of the Mountains competition invariably. I think it's really Ineos Grenadiers won the best team. Yeah, they were just on the podium smiling. Huh. Well, they're consistent. They didn't have like a star. They're just Castrovejo, Martinez, yeah. Bernal, Rodriguez, yeah. aren't they? That's what yeah. they are. It's just, you know. Yeah. Ben O'Connor, he's done good because pressure's on him. You like Ben O'Connor? I do like Ben O'Connor. I sense that you like Ben O'Connor. I like Ben O'Connor. Ever since that we watched, we commented on taking that tour of it. Tour of oh, it I love that win. Why did you like that so much? I remember I think you being I like, really I, enthusiastic about that. Because uh, I bumped into him on a ride a few years ago when he was Neo Pro. Oh, I see. And we just had a great chat, and I thought oh, you're really love, uh, a really nice guy. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, and so I got maybe just that bias. Oh, uh, we had quite a funny conversation before you came into the office today about because Ben O'Connor gave Daniel an interview down at the start line about, um, well, I think Daniel asked him, like, you know, is, is the GC fixed now? Is there much you can do? And I kind of sort of engaged with it, but they said, listen, to be honest, and I'm not, you know, I have to be honest with you, Jonas is in a totally different class. In fact, he's just taking the piss. Did he actually say that? He says, taking the piss. Nice. Let's be fair. Let's be honest about it. He's yeah. taking the piss. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I, I, I laughed at the interview. And then yeah. James, the director, came in. I said, are you using that quote in the program? Mm. And he goes, yeah. And I said, are you, be are you bleeping it? And he went, no. And Carolyn, who is uh, the exec producer, who is really cautious with all sorts yeah. of you know, regulations, said, yeah, you are. Uh, and James went, no. Look at the regula the Ofcom regulations. And you can say piss. You can say piss. And then we looked them all up. And it I won't say all those words because it's already an explicit yeah. content. But it listed all the bad words. Really? All the bad <laughs> words. All of them? Yeah. That's brilliant. Um, but it didn't list the word piss. So it's, I think it's fine to put in the podcast. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we had a right laugh just reading out the Ofcom regulations. Reading, and they're just really funny to see them all written down. Yeah. In, including some quite inventive ones. <laughs> <laughs> but I double-checked what the current Ofcom regulations are, David, because this is relevant to you and me mm. for the Tour de France. So we can actually say in commentary, oh, he's taking the piss. We can. That's brilliant. Yeah, Carolyn would hate us for doing it. That'd be so good, yeah. though, wouldn't it? That would just go viral. He's taking the piss! He's taking the piss! <laughs> <laughs> well, not, that's Walt Van Aert's whole Tour de France. What a piss taker! <laughs> the champion taker of piss, <laughs> Walt Van Aert. Again. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a couple of things in there about um, accidental nudity, which you see at the Tour de France yeah. from time to time. So the, the ITV4 policy is um, best to, best to apologise as soon as possible for any offence yeah. that's caused. Okay. Well, I'm not going to do that because I think it's just drawing attention to the fact yeah, that exactly. you've just accidentally seen a bloke having a wee. Or a yeah. piss. I could say piss. Yeah. You can um, see the random rolling penis. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you can just sense the directors like panicking and hitting a button trying to change well, the shot. the cameraman just going, <laughs> frame it off to the left. And like, frame it off. Um, and the other thing that we have to do, Ofcom obliges to do, is, you know, very often you get like a rider wins and all his teammates come up to him and oh, they're, they're all they're all from like, Belgium and, yeah, France, and yeah. so the English is a second language and none of them have yeah. any understanding of how this sounds to an English yeah. audience and it's F in this and F in that yeah. um, all caught on the microphone all distributed around yeah. the world we have to apologise oh, right, so if right. you think if you're watching the Tour de France and you think why are Ned and David being so, such prudes about that it's a regulation it's literally an Ofcom regulation oh. ITV get fined if we don't instantly apologise oh wow huh. so yeah, yeah but Brian has been good today again Oh, go, go on. With his words. Go on. Um, uh, uh, Bumblebee. <laughs> <laughs> Three minute wait. What was the next one? Oh, the next one was brilliant. Nova Scotia. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, quite a long way after that, like, like 20 minutes or so later, 
a private jet. <laughs> God, he's brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's brilliant. Did you watch football yesterday? Uh, no, I didn't. I went round to um, my friend uh, Ruth's house. Oh. I got home tired because it was a uh, hot ride into a hot headwind yesterday. Mm. Tired, collapsed, and thought, I don't even know what I'm going to cook for dinner. At which point the phone rang, and it was Ruth and Robin saying, Do you want to come around for dinner? You manifested so that. So we just walked over the hill and went for a lovely dinner, sat outside, got slightly mosquito bit. It was lovely, yes, yeah. Oh. And had um, salmon and cucumber and dill soup, a cold soup. Oh, well, that's very nice. Oh, delicious. That's nice just to get a random uh, really dinner nice. invite. Uh, exactly on exactly the right day as well. And yeah, it's really, so if you're listening, which they obviously don't. No. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, yes, um, so that's 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 it. You've got uh, you're flying back to Spain. Yeah, I'm flying back this evening at six twenty. Look forward to seeing the family. I um, can't wait. Yeah, brilliant. yeah, can't wait. Are they meeting at the airport? No, no I land in Barcelona, so I've got a bit of a schlep back up home. And then it's, it's nice uh, being met at the airport, though, isn't it? It is nice. It doesn't happen very often. It happens to us, never. Does it? it happens never. It's no no love actually moments, are there? Just not coming in and hugs and yeah. kisses. If and it, if you are ever met at an airport, it's by some producer you sort of half know, or you're looking around for somebody with a board. With a board. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, all right. You've got to do your last studio with Gary. And that was some... Um, it wasn't the best Dauphiné, I'll be honest. No, it wasn't. But I mean... What do we expect it to be? I, I don't, don't know. know. I mean, it's kind of more and more like that stage racing, isn't it? Particularly this race, because both its prominence and its position and its importance are also the thing that hampers it now. And also, here's a theory right. on that, <clears throat> is that it's a peloton of all the same type of riders. And yeah. similar stages. Yeah. So you don't have the kind of the different Variety. sort of stage potential outcomes. Yeah. It's kind of, it's all relatively inevitable. Yeah. I still yeah. prefer it to the Tour de Suisse. And I'm not just saying oh, that because... No, no, Tour de Suisse is Swiss. It's, it's very Swiss, isn't it? Yeah. It's just kind of yeah. clockwork. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Remco's going to be there, so it's going to be great. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. White Van Aert. Oh, well, Van Aert's going to be there as well. Matthew Van Der Poel. Yeah. Oh, seriously? I think so, yeah. No, Matthew Van Der Poel's not going. Oh, is he not going? No, no. He, I, oh, no, he's not going. You're right. I follow right. him closely, obviously. Yeah. He's yeah. doing... Um, Peter Sagan's going to be there. Is he? Yeah. Is that his first race back since his I looked at the cycling news preview of the Tour de Suisse yeah. this morning, and I stared at it for about 30 seconds before I could decipher it, because they had a picture of White Van Aert. They cut like three stars. Picture of White Van Aert. Picture of Remco in the rainbow bands. Mm. Picture of Peter Sagan in the rainbow bands. Mm. Oh. And I went, and no. it, it was quite a weird photograph of Sagan. So I went, is that, are those two pictures Do of Do you Remco? want to hear a weird rumour I heard? Which could be true. Theo Gegenhardt going to No, little, no, no, this is an track. old one. This is an old thing. This has to do with Peter Sagan. That when he was finishing, what was his fantasy? Boransgrove before he went to Total Energy. Yeah. Um, specialised, kind of offered him a contract to just be a specialised ambassador going to do some mountain bike races. Significant money to not go to Total Energy, to uh, kind of give them an offer to kind of retire, but keep racing mountain bike, doing fun stuff. Well, that would have been perfect for him. Exactly. Why didn't he do that? And now he's kind of damaged his brand by going to Total Energy. And, and being a bit Total Energy, yeah. And being normal. And That's really strange. Yeah, but it would have been a great idea, and it's, but he wanted to keep racing. Yeah. With sure. hindsight. He's been there three years, hasn't he, I think. Yeah. I mean, got paid a bucket load of money, I bet, but... That's just fair enough. Yeah. 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 Take the money. Anyway, all right. Okay, well, I'll see you in flipping Bilbao, mate. Bilbao. We've got to do some Basque research. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're already quite up to speed on that, aren't you? That cider stuff that they drink. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Try and learn a few words of Basque. Ooh, just that's to drop really hard. Commentary. Yeah, really hard. Yeah. Yeah, I won't, I won't be doing that. No.